Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Victoria Shembri, Kyra Mazur, Ian Sassin, Shania Stad, Graydon Pfeiffer, Vicky LeDuc, Lisa Boone, and Nick. Hi, I'm Nick in Kingston, Ontario. I've supported Canada Land. I've been a fan since Jesse was on Search Engine, and I started listening to Canada Land, and everything they do is getting better and better and more interesting with all the diversity of people and topics and different shows. It's been great. Total shit show went down at Ryerson University's journalism school last spring. Just a complete mess. This happened before the wider political stuff that you may have read about that played out at Ryerson. Before the statue of Egerton Ryerson was toppled and beheaded. Before Ryerson became ex-university. Same dynamics at work, though. This, this was kind of a precursor. And I don't know, you know, campus politics... Not something that we've given much space for here in the past. Questions about the wider relevance of campus politics stories, the newsworthiness being, you know, the chief reasons why we haven't really talked about that much. But also, I've always felt that students involved in these kinds of things, they have the right to be left the fuck alone, you know? Like, I think that maybe part of the point of going to university is you get to have your own little ecosystem to try shit out, to try out ideas, opinions, 
ideologies, personas, to wage little wars with each other and, and with faculty, you know, to have a little sandbox to, to experiment with adult life, even public adult life, but not so public, you know? You've got little university campus versions of, you know, the university newspaper, university politics. Students need a safe space to be wrong, to fuck around and find out. So hauling a campus controversy onto a national stage, that never seemed fair to me. But this one was not up to me. This one became national news all on its own. And people got hurt. All right, here's what happened. Last fall. A student named Jonathan Bradley began his fourth and final year at Ryerson's journalism program. His identity as a devout Roman Catholic may have made him a bit of an odd man out within the student body, but this was not about just who he is. It's also about what he did. To fully explain the context for everything that came next, you need to recognize that Jonathan Bradley had a bit of a libertarian edgelord thing going on. He had written an op-ed for the right-wing post-millennial website calling for all equity, diversity, and inclusion offices to be removed from all university campuses across Canada. He was poking the woke. And the woke got poked. His editor at Ryerson's student newspaper asked him to maybe not come to their staff pub nights as a consequence of his post-millennial hot take as his presence might make his classmates uncomfortable. And why am I even talking about this? Will next week's show be about who got a longer turn on the playground swing set? All right, I'm getting to it. Bear with me. There's a point here. Seriously, you got to trust me. This gets so much worse. The next thing that happened is an old classmate of Jonathan Bradley's from high school posts screenshots of a private Twitter direct message chat they had three years prior when Jonathan Bradley was 18 years old. And these private DMs are cited on Twitter publicly as proof that Jonathan Bradley is, quote, a bigot and a transphobe and a homophobe. This was a very public calling out and damnation of Jonathan Bradley. Both Ryerson and the Eye Opener, the student newspaper, were tagged in this tweet, suggesting that consequences were being requested. But I cannot tell you what those previously private DM messages by Jonathan Bradley, this proof of his alleged homophobia, etc. I can't tell you what those messages said because the student who posted them deleted them after Bradley initiated a libel lawsuit against her. And to tell you the truth, I'm kind of glad that I don't have access to those messages because whatever they said these were private messages sent by an 18-year-old, and I do think that that still matters. What I can tell you is that because of those private messages getting posted and then getting disappeared, other people went through Jonathan Bradley's public tweet history and found that years earlier, again, when he was 18 years old, he had tweeted that the Bible says that homosexuality and transvestism, which is how he put it, are both sins. Asterisk here, I guess, to say that while the Catholic Church does still read the Bible that way and certain strains of Judaism agree, others interpret the Bible very differently. Anyhow, Bradley was then fired from his volunteer job at the student newspaper. 
the cause for that firing being how can Jonathan Bradley be assigned anything? How can he cover any news story impartially as a reporter while he harbors his beliefs, given that there will potentially be queer sources in any story that he might be assigned to? Okay, so after being fired from his volunteer job, Jonathan Bradley lawyers up and launches a human rights complaint against the student newspaper, claiming that this is a case of religious persecution. And then Barbara Kay takes on his cause in a post-millennial write-up. The National Post then gets on board. They feed his grist into their mill, and away we go. I am not nearly done yet. Last February, under lockdown, the Ryerson Journalism School held its semi-annual general meeting online. This is not usually a very popular event, but this time something was clearly up. Over 80 students were in virtual attendance. Undergraduate director Lisa Taylor, school chair Janice Neal, and other faculty members in that meeting are confronted about Jonathan Bradley, whose name few dared to utter, fearing legal repercussions, perhaps. Now, at that point, Janice Neal, who ran the J School, she had declined to comment about Jonathan Bradley to the student press, not wanting to weigh in on an ongoing legal case. But Bradley had since threatened yet another student with a libel suit for allegedly defaming him online. And so the students demanded to know what were their teachers going to do to protect them from their litigious classmate. Um, It was about how a lot of our community um, at RSJ currently feels like our school is an unsafe space. And so what the faculty was planning on doing about that. And if there were going to be any statements that would be released, not about what the legal matter of it is, but what what the school is going to do to make this safe space again for us. This was the response from undergraduate director Lisa Taylor. I also want to suggest, I think um, many of us watched and were very troubled when we saw what happened when Donald Trump tried to subvert due process in so many ways. And if you were bothered by that leader's decision to skip due process, to try to affect the outcomes of decision-making bodies like the Supreme Court, uh, you'll understand why I know it's painful, I know it's slow, but there's a lot of really good reasons to let a public body as significant as the Ontario Human Rights Commission deal with the matter. A video clip of that remark was then taken from the larger live stream of that whole meeting and posted to Twitter by an outraged student who said a professor has likened student demand for better support for queer students to Donald Trump trying to steal the 2020 U.S. election. People, are you getting the picture yet? The campus bubble got exploded here. Anything you say anywhere can and will be held against you in a court of law Yes, an actual court of law or in a tweet or in a national newspaper, all bets were off. Everything was now deemed recordable and reportable. And so it was. Students began collecting demands, grievances, years of testimonials, covering dozens of topics and assembling them into a broad open letter signed by hundreds of current and former J school students. And right before that open letter was published, Janice Neal and Lisa Taylor stepped down as the heads of Ryerson University's journalism school program. The letter then comes out, and I don't even know where to begin in in terms of describing this open letter from the students. And for reasons that we're going to get into, 
I don't think that I should do so alone. So joining me here is our reporter, Sharice Sucharan. Sharice, hello. Hi, Jesse. I think that there might be some people out there wondering why I'm so worked up about this open letter months after it came out. Well, why are you so worked up? All right. There are layers to this. My first issue is with the connection to Jonathan Bradley as the catalyst for the students saying, over the past three weeks, we have watched our program's leaders fail to condemn homophobia and transphobia. As far as I can tell, I don't see him as just somebody who is targeted for his Catholicism, but it's not like he was on campus espousing bigoted homophobic comments. At any campus, there are people wearing a kippah, or there might be people in a niqab who might be suspected of harboring fundamentalist religious views. And like the, the way in which his beliefs became public were not super cool. Well, is this freedom of speech or freedom from consequences? I, I would say that maybe this is just a consequence of speaking your beliefs in this context. I mean, it wasn't just the high school tweet. It was the article in the post-millennial. It was several months of these students being in class with this person and sort of the tension that that created over that time period, which led to the explosion at the town hall. Well, that is interesting. And I know that you've spoken to a lot of his former classmates. You heard a lot of anecdotal stuff about the kind of provocations that some people felt that he made on the regular and something that I think in this context, students were saying to faculty, we need protection from. For years, faculty have repeatedly fallen short of treating students with decency and respect, often belittling their experiences and feelings. Students have consistently felt bullied, emotionally neglected, and hurt by administrative staff. Students are regularly expected to report on stressful and potentially traumatic events. So like the Joe Pro journalist in me is like, yeah, welcome to journalism. You, you have to report on stressful and potentially traumatic events. That's what covering the news is, right? And the current support system at RSJ does not properly address mental health concerns. And we're given a ton of circumstances where people had trauma from their personal lives. They took it to their profs and the profs were not up to the challenge and they were further traumatized. Yeah, they're supposed to teach you how to fill out an ATIP request. They're not your psychiatrist. And Sharice, I reject my own take right there, on further reflection. How so? When I first read this, I felt like a dad. I felt like this is a bunch of whining. And then I'm like, well, why the hell shouldn't they? First of all, they are not me. You went to J school. I didn't go to J school. And so why should I compare, first of all, my outlook to theirs? And second of all, fuck that reactionary take of mine of like, this isn't how it is in the real world. Like maybe they don't like the way that it is in the real world, and they're trying to change it in an idealistic, maybe kind of ham-fisted way, as students do. But like, okay, cool. That, that's that's what you should do, right, when you're that age. Yeah. Right? I get that. And demands. Administration and faculty members must attend de-escalation, mental health, and empathy training. All Ryerson School journalism staff should undergo yearly equity, diversity, inclusion training. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad we you brought this up. I mean, I went to J school. I'm also a woman of color, and I experienced J school that way. And in journalism, your connections really make your entire career. And so what happens in J school is that you're probably going to have profs that have big connections to all of the media outlets that you would want to work for. And your relationships, to those profs really make or break your entire trajectory. I mean, if you mess up in J school, that could really impact the rest of your life. 
Um, it's also harder as a BIPOC or a queer student because, like I said, J-schools repeat those patterns in the industry. We do see discrimination still towards those kinds of students. It's harder to recognize when you're a minority in journalism that still exists. I get that. I think, you know, Jeet here made this point when we first talked about this on Shortcuts to me, but, but it's like if you're in medical school and like your professor isn't great or something, if you can get through, you will be a doctor. So you can kind of shrug it off. But if you're in J school, it's like this weird environment where it's like, well, only two out of 30 of you are even going to be able to work. Exactly. And whether you work or not might depend on whether your professor actually sets you up with a job. From my perspective, I can't ignore the fact that I only started really speaking up myself about problems in this industry when it looked like I had no future in it. You know, <laughs> it wasn't until we get to the end of the open letter that my take on this really took a turn. What was the thing that changed your mind? The testimonials. What follows in this very long open letter is a collection of student grievances from some students who provide their names, some students who don't. One student says, I was a visible Muslim woman of color sitting in a class, and whenever the terms terrorist, radicalist, or ISIS came up, the white professor's eyes would drift to me. Mm -hmm. I don't debate that that was the subjective experience of that student, that that's what they perceived, but that's just one person, that's what they felt happening. Another student says, administration doesn't care about anyone, let alone a sexual assault survivor. An anonymous student said that. One student said... A professor had behaved inappropriately, we don't know how, and they complained about it, and then they were targeted by two professors who sent multiple threatening and harassing emails, mm -hmm. right? So these are very subjective experiences, and some of them are like allegations and accusations. And there is no evidence in the open letter that there was any effort made to verify whether these allegations, whether these things actually happened. Right. And there's also no evidence in the open letter that the people implicated by this, some of them by name, were asked for their side of the story. Right. And so one thing that, like, is at a fundamental level with any journalist or aspiring journalist, a, a shared set of ideals that I, would, I can't get past if we're incompatible with is you don't publish allegations against people unless you try to find out if they're true and ask them for their side of the story. So I want to just say that I think we understand the letter in a fundamentally different way. After conversations with students that were part of the organizing of the letter, I came away from that understanding it as a way of the students to communicate with the faculty and to have a dialogue that they had no other way of having. And so I don't regard it as a work of journalism and what's contained in this letter is a series of personal accounts. From what I learned from the students that helped organize it, they claim that they're a leaderless group. Nobody is necessarily stepping up here to say that they're the publisher or, or they oversaw every detail. This was a collaborative effort, and it was really their way of giving every student at the school an opportunity to kind of say their piece. It's not a reported piece. But that's it right there. That's the thing. It doesn't matter what you call it because it's a published allegation or a list of public allegations. And, and that's the big journalism lesson here is that 
doesn't matter if you're on Twitter, doesn't matter if you're in a meeting, doesn't matter if it's an open letter that's just meant to be between you and your professors, if you publish it publicly, then it could have the same impact as any other published report. And that's why we do journalism. That's why we check to see if it's true and we ask the other side for their side of the story because this did have impacts. It had the kind of impacts that journalism has, you know. But is uh, every published piece of work a piece of journalism? I don't care. Arose by any other name. I don't care if you call it journalism or not. Journalism is just a practice by which we try to arrive at a defensible report. It's not always true, but you try your best to make it true. And in this case, they didn't try their best to make it true. And so it's hard for me to defend them when we talk about the fact that this had impacts and people like left their jobs over this. From what I understand, some of the students involved in creating the letter did do a baseline level of fact checking. It reads like they just smacked together, like here, insert your complaint against anybody at Ryerson here. And part of journalism is showing your work. And I know that there were problems because they redacted names afterwards and made changes and added things. I think this is, though, the nature of these types of accusations. I think things like bullying, discrimination, racism, you can't just, you know, call around and confirm a racism happened. It it doesn't happen that way. But there is a practice of journalism around that. And I've reported stories like this. Like I need to have at least three people telling me this kind of independently, or if there's specific incidents, I need to find at least two people who are there who can confirm that it happened. Like we're still doing journalism when people complain about systemic issues. I actually think that that makes this document interesting. I think it challenges our notion of what journalism is in this context. I think as a journalist, it is incredibly difficult, especially when maybe you don't have three people that can back up an incident. I don't know if it's the right way, but it it definitely makes a statement. It made a statement. It had an impact, but I'm not sure it was the impact the students wanted. And uh, I think that's about taking responsibility for the things that we publish. But you know what? I'm lecturing here and I'm up on my high horse, but I am a complicated moderator and voice and host in this episode and why I need your help today and what we're going to try to do here. Like we hoped that we could just get these people to sit down with each other, the faculty who left their jobs, students who wrote this letter and see if there's any like reflectiveness or thoughtfulness or uh, what people could make of this. And maybe we could host a conversation like that would not go off the rails. And Maybe that would have been possible to accomplish, but we were not able to accomplish that. We got a couple of the faculty members to agree, and at first we could not get students to sit down with them. And so we decided to have these interviews separately, first with a couple faculty members and then with a couple of students. But it would not be accurate, Sharice, to say (laughs) that that panel conversation was impossible because after we had done some of the interviewing, a student did say that they were willing to talk to the professors. It just didn't happen in time for today's show. That is accurate. All right. I'm going to talk to Karen Pugliese, who has been on the show many times, who left Ryerson after the open letter came out, who was originally named in the open letter. And I'm going to talk to Lisa Taylor. And my disclosure is that Karen's a friend of mine, and that probably influences my whole take on this. Well, do you, a question for you is, given that she's a friend, do you think you're able to fairly interview her? Yeah, I do, as long as the listener knows that she's my friend. What I decided I couldn't do is interview the students. So you could not interview the students fairly. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I don't think I'm good enough at this job. All right. I also want to uh, disclose, I do have a friendly relationship with Karen as well. Um, she's my 
was my mentor under the CAJ mentorship program. Anyhow, those are our cards on the table. I'm going to talk to Karen and Lisa in a minute. Which students did you talk to? So I talked to Sarah Critchell and Rhea Singh. All right. Wait for it. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Karen, I want to begin by asking you, why did you leave your job at Ryerson? Well, you know, it was just such a hard year teaching during the pandemic. The students weren't happy. I wasn't happy. And then a third of it is just confusion over everything that took place at the university this year that I guess we're here to discuss. Lisa, why did you step down from two of your roles at Ryerson as undergraduate program director and associate chair? I stepped down because I felt that to continue in the role might be perceived, might be framed as me being antagonistic or um, indifferent to the chorus of student voices that were saying something big has to change here. And the only one that was in my control was my role. So I stepped away because I was afraid that continuing might be harmful to a student. The students issue a list of demands, none of which included your resignation or Janice Neal's resignation, I think it's only reasonable to suggest that there is a perception that you are somehow responsible and acknowledging responsibility for this institutionalized racism, unsafety, discrimination, trauma, abuse. Are you taking responsibility for those things? I realize that that is a reasonable inference one might draw from my stepping down. But 
in the kind of risk analysis, I was willing to wear that. I'm willing to wear the fact that there may always be a, a cloud around my name that suggests I was indifferent to the interests of students from equity-seeking groups. But I had to choose the path that would cause the least damage. And I was willing to let that stain uh, kind of accompany me through the rest of my career and and in my, my personal life, because it was more palatable to me than continuing to inflame students at a tremendously vulnerable time in our society and certainly at a tremendously challenging time to be a post-secondary student. If students weren't happy, then I guess I'm owning. I have to own some of that because if that's what students feel, that's what students feel. Was it your job to make them happy? No, you're right. It's, it's not my job to make them happy. But to tell you the truth, I love making students happy. Sorry, I want to jump in, Jesse, because I mean, one of the reasons I told you I wanted to come on the show is that I had a grave concern that You know, sort of in the mainstream media, there was kind of an article that came out and said, students say racism. And then you have these two people resign. And it would be easy to jump to the conclusion that they had done something. I mean, Janice and Lisa were really, I think, beloved by many students. Some of them come and told me who were involved in the letter that they didn't understand that this was going to be the outcome, was going to be the resignation of these two women. I feel like they fell on their swords for maybe mistakes that other people in the department have made, including myself, and it's not fair that they wear it. And nobody's saying that. Karen, you've kind of made clear why you're here today, I guess, so that somebody says something, lest everyone just conclude, here is the problem. It was Lisa and Janice. That is not your perception of this. And the problem's not dealt with. Lisa, why are you speaking with me today? Well, um, I initially said yes to this interview because of what you told me you had originally envisioned here. And that was a chance to sit down in real time with some reflective students to better understand this. Because we are six months into this, and I am not disputing that there are people who clearly feel I failed them and failed them in, in really fundamental ways. But as journalists, when someone makes a big statement about systemic problems or, or entrenched problems, the first thing I would say as a journalist is, okay, so Jesse, what's an example of that? And I have been reaching out to students. I did a quick tabulation, uh, over 100 current and former students in the past six months, people who signed letters or who wrote to me to say, can you sit with me and help me uh, understand the specific times so that I can make sure that these things are never happening again on my watch, wherever I am or in whatever role I'm in. And if you don't feel comfortable with me alone, bring a friend. If you don't feel comfortable with me knowing it's you, set up a burner email and send me a note. Like, let me know about these things. And I can't get answers to what's an example of this. Mm -hmm. So I still don't understand. And man, I want to understand. With specific reference to what the students want to achieve, the idea of decolonizing journalism and journalism education, the idea of representation and diversity, and taking those ideals and translating them into practice can be very difficult. And it's one thing to say, not only do we want BIPOC faculty at every level, but we want it with people who have the experience in the industry to have you on faculty, to have a Indigenous professor who has run a newsroom, I don't know if there are four people 
in Canada. They're exactly four. <laughs> They're exactly four? I got it right. <laughs> Bingo. So to lose that feels like the opposite of the intention. Though there was some criticism of you that was then redacted, there was no call for your dismissal. There was no... Right. And I, I want to correct you there. The, the criticism of me was not redacted. The, your name was redacted. Uh, the, after... the chip of the hat to me, I think, was redacted. Because the way it happened is there was initially that big part about Kathy English. They accused Kathy English of being responsible for Maxime Bernier meeting with the editorial board of the Toronto Star at an all-white meeting. She was not responsible for that. She did attend that meeting, which became kind of a mark against her. They did issue a correction to that error. Some of the things in there might not have been true or fact-checked. But overall, it doesn't erase the fact that there's problems in the School of Journalism, even if there were mistakes in the documents. So I don't want to piss all over the students. They got a lot of pushback and they don't need any more. But my name was in there right after because I replaced Kathy in teaching the critical issues course that we called Jern 400. And they said, this is an improvement, but there's still more to do. But I'd made a comment vaguely on social media on this BIPOC site. And one of the students who was involved in the letter wrote me back and we had this private discussion. And I said, you know, these two people just resigned and they were friends of mine. I know Kathy English. She's a friend of mine. I'm not trying to interfere with what you're doing, but you used my name. And in this way that kind of looks like I might have had something to do with this. And he said, I'm absolutely sorry. I thought it was a compliment. I didn't see it as weaponizing your name. So they redacted that part. Um, the complaint that doesn't name me is still in there. And it basically says that according to the, the timing of the complaint, it would have have to have been like really the first or second class that I taught that um, I acted in a way that made them so uncomfortable they couldn't come and see me about a problem. You know, it's Zoom. And you know, Jesse, sometimes I make stupid jokes. I mean, I, I don't know what I did, but I'm willing to believe that I did such a thing and made somebody uncomfortable. And this comes down to the problem. Nobody feels safe talking about it. There's no safe space to, it seems, have any of these discussions that I'm just so used to having in newsrooms, you know? So did you leave then out of solidarity with your friends and support system? Did you feel safe? No, I don't feel safe. But I knew that taking the job. When you go in and you, you become a BIPOC professor, a few things were explained to me by other BIPOC professors. And it's that you are going to be asked to take some of the most challenging courses because the students want these courses and they want them taught by people with lived experience. And God help you if they're mandatory course because it brings in everybody, including people who feel this topic is being shoved down my throat. And you will get it from both sides. You'll get it from the students who think you're not going far enough and you'll get it from the students who don't want to have this discussion in the first place. So that was kind of like the Journalism 400. And I, I did get statements mentioning race and identity and gender back in, you know, the reviews. The majority of reviews were constructive criticism and helpful, but there were five that were intended to hurt. And those count when you're getting tenured, right? People look at those evaluations. Those five negative student evaluations. Mm -hmm. Lisa, to this question of safety, it's unusual for there to be a Google Doc that the whole country is looking at. This all became national news in a way that I think is, is more or less unprecedented. Did you feel safe in your role at Ryerson? I don't know how to answer, did I feel safe in my role? Um, I do, I do. I mean, let's just unpack the multiple layers of privilege that I'm existing in here, okay? I'm a straight 
cis white woman who's a tenured professor. Things are, you know, okay. I'm, uh, I, I have a job that sustains throughout this. I feel disappointed in myself and in circumstances and in the fever pitch that the pandemic put so many of us into. What did you do wrong that you would do differently if you could do it again? Two things. Figure out how to work faster. There were unmet student needs. I was working my damnedest to meet student needs seven days of the week at the expense of my own family, my own middle school learner. I put this stuff first because it's my job and it's been a job of such. So what's your regret that you didn't work eight days a week? By your description, that sounds like quite a lot. Yeah, well, but we all had to work differently. Everything slowed down. Everything took more time just when student need was pitched even higher. The reality that I think is more born of hubris than pandemic is this. When you have an awful lot of students coming to you with problems, when you solve problems, when those students, you know, give you the real or virtual hug or thanks or high five that says, wow, you helped me. This is, you know, this saves me. This funding means I can get a Metro pass, whatever. It's very easy to feel like you're doing your job. And my critical thinking miss was to say, okay, I've got a lot of happy customers coming through the real or virtual door, but who am I not hearing from? Who's out there who maybe has a problem that isn't reaching out and asking me to solve it? Do I need to do more outreach? I really wish I'd reminded students more regularly of all the different systems that the chair, Janice Neal, had set up to make anonymous complaints. I wish I had spent more time going to first year classes as I normally do saying, hey, if you, you should talk to your prof about a problem with them, but if you can't, talk to me. And if you can't talk to me, talk to, and then we would go through the list right down to their own course union and say, find someone you trust and let them help you speak truth to power, but don't suffer in silence because you're here for the best education we can give you. So hold us accountable. I want to jump in on something that Lisa said too. It's very easy when you've got students who are coming to talk to you. There's one student who's in my investigative course. We talked about a whole bunch of things, you know, and so you kind of feel like, oh, I'm doing great. I'm approachable. And I was really sideswiped. Like, I never would have saw this coming. All I have to go on is what they wrote. But doesn't someone need to say to these students, at a bare minimum, in journalism, when you publish allegations about someone, you have to check if they're true. And you have to ask them for comment. I have fundamental problems with this document as a report and students were arguing, well, it's not journalism, it's activism, whatever it was, it was a publication of allegations. And I was disturbed to see a long list of senior journalists who are alumni putting their names to a document that they have no way of knowing if it's true. Are we not doing the students a disservice to not assert those basic principles here? I'm glad you are. I both can't and I'm really vexed that I can't. I can't because it looks like entirely self-defensive behavior. You know, if the medium is the message, I am not the medium for this one, okay? It, it can't come from me. And I say a, that... A journalism um, prof can't say those things? No, a journalism prof who was at the helm in a leadership role when things went south so terribly, I can't because of that. Could I say it at another institution? Yes. Can I say it when I return to Ryerson and I'm just Lisa the professor? I can have these conversations. I was supposed to teach these students how not to defame people. And clearly I failed. 
because there were defamatory comments, there were unsubstantiated comments. Maybe that's where I also failed was when teaching defamation law to journalists to say, by the way, this applies in any other form of communication you engage in, not just when you're wearing your reporter's hat. I guess you could take the fall for that, I suppose. I can think of no greater journalism lesson to give to aspiring journalists than to say there is no safe space from a defamation lawsuit. If you call anybody a homophobe or a bigot, they might sue you and no one can protect you from that. But if you practice journalism responsibly and get the other side of the story before printing an allegation and try to find out if it's true, that is a valid defense in winning that lawsuit. Mm -hmm. With some of the things that you bring up, I should talk a little bit about Jonathan Bradley because he was working for a newsletter that I supervised. I was on the team that hired him. It came up in the meeting that Lisa had, didn't you guys take a look at his social media posts, which, no, Mm -hmm. I generally don't, but I certainly wouldn't have gone back four or five years. Um, I understand the posts that went up were sometimes around high school. So I found out about his opinions and his actions at the same time as all the students. Look, the idea that you should have vetted five years of social media comments going back to the high school era of this person before, you know, working with them as a student or or hiring them for a a student job role is absurd. This is messy stuff. It's not cut and dry. There was a Zoom meeting in which I did not know that the Jonathan Bradley story had come out and that this was an issue that students were aware of. It's a Friday night meeting. I'm actually on holidays, but I sign into the Friday night meeting with students because I will never miss a student, kind of an all-student meeting because that's part of the gig. And I didn't see it coming. And when students started to say things that were sounding very defamatory, I started working really actively and really aggressively to get those students to shut up. (laughs) I will make no apologies for how hard I worked to get them to shut up. My greater concern was that they didn't understand that they weren't, quote unquote, just venting, that this would have repercussions for them. And I just couldn't bear to see a student possibly having to respond to a defamation suit. So I was mouthy. I was long winded. I just about, you know, broke into pantomime, whatever it took. I would tap dance, tell stories of vacations, whatever you needed, just to get people to not say defamatory things. Um On my most bitter days, if I had my time back, I think I could have just muted my mic and just let the chips fall where they may, because all I really did was enraged students. In trying to get them to stop decrying him and making themselves vulnerable for possible defamation lawsuits, which did happen, you ran afoul of the students as his defender, I suppose? I I believe so, as, as his defender. Yes, absolutely. And I just knew instead that what I was concerned about was students just not ending up on the wrong end of a lawsuit. I couldn't bear that. And they were mad because I was shutting down their voices. But it felt like the best thing to do for them in that moment. You know, I remember also Lisa saying in that meeting, this is not the place. This is a public space. Come to my office. If these things were easy to work out or easy to solve, we would have solved them already. Speaking to the whole gamut of things that were coming at them. And that didn't happen. I mean, that's the thing is that that didn't happen. Everything was so heated and weird this year, like the students weren't the same. When we started this year, there there were students who never turned on their camera the entire year. There were students who had meetings with me and didn't turn on the camera and 
I, I was concerned about some of them. So, I mean, I don't think we can discount either that there was an overwhelming amount of mental health issues coming out of the pandemic that we just as professors, but I think also the university, just we, we all felt very overwhelmed with. Um, I hope the students come on at some point and talk to you because I feel like I'm talking for them and I don't want to do that. Listen, you're describing something that everybody experienced this past year, that uh, there was widespread mental health, uh, just wellness was difficult to maintain. And it doesn't strike me as a huge surprise that in almost every aspect of society, a lot of pre-existing circumstances came to a conflict point. There were breaks that were a long time coming and revolutions are messy mm-hmm. and heads are going to have to roll, you know, and, and in, in a school, they're the customer. And I guess ultimately, if enough customers get together and say, we are unhappy and things have to change, well, the customer is right. They're not the customer when they go into newsrooms. They're not the customer in, in schools as well. But, but Jesse, I, I can't believe that I'm going to be the one to tell you. They're there. It's not as bad as you think it is. I, I do need to believe that um, in time we will see this through the lens of, yeah, we were all really, you know, at a fragile place you know, February, the cruelest month in any regular academic year. And now let's just add a pandemic. Um, I think that a lot of students may wake up in a, you know, in a month, in a year and go, you know, yeah, glad we fought the big fight. But yeah, the the, the kind of um, collateral damage was greater than it had to be. I, I hope there will be that recognition. Um, and I I'm willing to say as someone who, yeah, is part of the collateral damage that what comes of this could be better. Like, it it could be worth it. It could be worth it overall. Karen, you may be the first person in history who's joined CBC management and receiving less political clusterfuckery. That might be the first time someone has found a refuge in CBC management. If I'm going to be like 100% honest, I worked really hard for my career. It didn't come to me easy. I've made mistakes. Oh, God, if I've made mistakes. I've learned something, and maybe other people can learn this too. I've been very careful about my career, how much space I take up. I've really tried to do it right. And I'll just be damned if I'm going to resign one day because somebody writes an anonymous note about me. You just heard from members of the Ryerson faculty. But there's another side of all of this, the students. I sat down with Sarah Cushell, Ryerson alum and former editor-in-chief of The Eye Opener, and Rhea Singh, a current student and one of the organizers of The Open Letter. Here's what they had to say. I'm curious how it came to be. Can you explain kind of how this came together? It was just like after Zoom calls and talking out of frustration to each other about like what was going on that we realized, okay, let's utilize this frustration into action. We decided that we're going to send a bunch of emails And if that doesn't work, we're going to push for meetings. And if that doesn't work, we're going to come out with a letter. And we gave them the opportunity. And now we're just going to put it out in the public and be like, this is how we feel. So it probably was within like three weeks to a month that it took us to put the letter together. At the beginning, we consistently emailed them being like, listen, we really want to have another town hall where we can discuss this. We want two specific profs to be there. And we want these specific people to be there because they are part of the issue because they are in a position of authority in the program where they can actually create that change. But they kept coming back being like, we can only do one-on-ones or we can only do one-on-ones, but you bring a friend. And a lot of us were like, we don't feel safe with just doing a one-on-one because we feel like we might get gaslit. 
you know, we feel like we might get bullied. And so we want it to be in a bigger setting where we feel safe with the backing of students. And I think there were also a lot of interpersonal meetings that people had before this whole conversation was starting to kind of gain traction among the collective. I've had multiple conversations with individual profs, including the two who resigned, Janice and Lisa, where I've kind of brought up my personal concerns. I've brought up concerns that I've witnessed as a result of being at the school for so long, as well as in a leadership position at the eye opener at our campus paper. And nothing was really yielded from those conversations. There was always kind of a bureaucratic reason why we couldn't get the support that we needed. I'm certain that other students had those conversations as well. I I know that they did. And I think that that's kind of why we all eventually came together and wanted this group approach instead, because there was evidence that these one-on-one meetings don't work. What was it that you were seeing that the administration wasn't addressing? From personal experience, it was a lot of empty promises. I remember we kept talking about this one thing that Lisa had mentioned at the beginning of first year. We were told that if you ever need help when it comes to mental health, if you ever need any sort of help in any way, we are here for you. And it was very much like, we are your family. We will help you in any way that we possibly can. And that kind of was just thrown out the window once school fully started. I had a personal incident that happened that affected my education for a good year. And I finally went to our academic advisor. I just sat there crying and they were like very nice about it, but they were like, listen, like there's no other choice. You will have to take an extra year. And then I think it was two months later, I was told a completely different story from another prof. And there's so much miscommunication and there's so much like stress and burnout that comes from all this miscommunication. It feels like a very hostile environment sometimes. So, yeah. And did you have to end up taking the extra year? I am currently taking the extra year. Yes. I would agree with everything Rhea said. There was such a malicious response at times when a student wouldn't be living up to expectations. I was told that I don't belong at Ryerson. I don't belong at journalism school because I made a mistake in an assignment. And like Rhea said, it wasn't about the learning for this particular prof. It was about you don't belong here. I know a lot of students felt like journalism school only was really there for you if you were turning out to be a kind of cookie cutter journalist, either meant for the CBC or the Toronto Star, and that's it. And if you had any other kind of transformative or radical or or any sort of varying idea of what journalism should be or could be, then you were not really given the same support as other students. So you saw a lot of students of color, LGBTQ students or Indigenous students who weren't as supported. And I know that you asked me on for this specific reason, Sharice, when I was in a leadership position at the I, like I saw close up the student mental health crisis, which extends beyond journalism school. And I saw, you know, substance abuse and I saw depression and I saw physical health dwindling amongst people that I was extremely close to. And I communicated these issues to administration when I felt like I was in a stable enough position mentally and emotionally to do so. And it yielded no results, like I said. People were coming to me as their editor-in-chief. My approach to leadership was very community-like. I felt like we were all kind of there for each other in the way that the university was supposed to be. And yeah, it was my personal decision to do that. Yeah, not every single editor-in-chief is going to set the same boundaries. One student would come to me about, you know, they're losing hair because of how stressed out they are and because they need to work 
two jobs. They need to work at the eye and they need to work at the Ryerson gym and they need to be a full-time student to graduate in time. And then another student would be breaking down about like familial issues. And another student would be dealing with substance dependency issues because they are dealing with, you know, the financial stresses of paying for tuition and having to take out loans and owing so much money, etc. So when I spoke to another prof, this is like a separate conversation from the other one I mentioned, I kind of broke this all down to her. I Again, same result. This professor just kind of nodded at me very sympathetically and there's not much we can do. And out of that conversation, I was like, I was offered to do like a mental health talk with like a first year lecture room or something. And sure, like that just kind of feels like a response where there's even more labor on me now. Like, Right. I mean, as a student, if you're facing these kinds of mental health issues that you mentioned before, like how, what would it look like if you went to seek support? Can you kind of explain that? Yeah, like there are a lot of options that are there. However, the options are so restricted that it's so hard to access them. The first thing that we were always told is, you know, go to your prof and have that conversation with them. But then usually the prof never knows where to direct you. And if they direct you to Ryerson Counseling Services, that has a wait list of over like eight months. And it all kind of goes back to the academic advisor and it is obviously not on the academic advisor to cure their, you know, mental health or to, but to provide resources because that's their job to help them and direct them to where to go. And it ended up just me like literally just dropping in and being like, you know what, I'm going to do it on my own. Thank you for motivating me to do it on my own because you did nothing to help me. So it's incredibly complicated and also very tiring to actually get help. And to the point where, like, I found myself literally just, like, calling a suicide hotline because that was the most accessible thing that I could actually get to that my sc- had nothing to do with my school. Because even, like, our hotline at our school, it's just, like, waiting on the phone for, like, 30 minutes to talk to someone. There are students who genuinely cannot wait more than one day or wait more than a week or wait more than a month to help them like save their life or like guiding them through a certain tough time in their life. So, I mean, after all this and then there's the meeting and then the letter sort of like in the process of happening. And then there's like the moment when like Lisa and Janice resign. What was the reaction to that? What was your reaction to that? I thought it was a cop out. Honestly. Um, I know that they did that to open a space for someone else, you know, a person of color or a person who identifies as a member of the LGBTQ community to take on this role because that's what students wanted to see because they can identify with someone in a person of this power. But their thought process of it was that I'm going to give this position to someone else. But how we saw it was that there are all these problems that you are not willing to address and your decision is to resign instead of resigning. You could have just sat down with the students who've been asking you to talk with them for so long and discuss about the improvements that you can make. You can leave if you want, but don't leave with a complete mess on the table. Also, I think the coverage of it really worked against students. The two profs had resigned like hours before the open letter was put out. And there were a couple articles that were erroneously reported that stated that following an open letter charging racism and all of this 
two big profs resign, et cetera. And it just kind of ended up putting such a narrative to it of victimhood. I don't even think resignation was something that we discussed. Like it was never a topic that even came up in our minds in terms of, oh, these profs should resign. The timing of the letter right after the resignations, was that planned? No, no, because we didn't know about we were all shocked when they resigned, when we they resigned over Twitter at like 11 p.m. and at 7 a.m. right before the morning that we were putting it out. Or sorry, that the students were putting it out. Yeah. So no. Was- <laughs> right. And at that point, did you think that like, oh, maybe we should hold off? Like, was there a conversation? We definitely had a discussion of like, are we going to publish it immediately after the resignation or should we wait? I think we never thought that it was not going to get published because people had put in so much work into the letter that we were like, you know what, we're going to just go on our original schedule. And we had scheduled that day for like a week in advance. We were like, okay, it's going to be this day. The letter went through like five drafts of editing and we reached out to students for testimonials, which we redacted any prof's name or anyone's name specifically just for the safety of students. Even if it was anonymous, we didn't want there to be any bullying or specifically things to the testimonials, but we did include one former prof's name. And then we had decided that a lot of students had come to us and been like, hey, we actually have testimonials of our own. Is there any way that we can add ours to make it longer? And we were like, of course, that's perfectly fine. And we put it at the bottom that there's going to be specific testimonials that are going to be added preceding the publication. And we made that very clear in the statement. And then we had, I think there was a factual error that we had and we made, we had to correct that one and we removed that pros name. And we also redacted that just for, again, the safety of students. And, you know, I understand the critique and criticism that we get for, I guess, that specific error And, you know, having like changed in some sense the statement, which was just honestly correcting that factual error. So it wasn't wrong. Um, And I think a lot of people over dramatized it in terms of that, like, oh, this was another document that came out. Like, what's their true statement? It's like we just corrected ourselves, like anyone within a field where you have to do fact checking and your research to make sure everything is correct and you're not spreading misinformation Sometimes people slip up in the smallest ways, and unfortunately we did, but we have to acknowledge that, especially as journalists, we have to acknowledge when we're at fault for certain things, especially when we're trying to confront people for their faults. It would be hypocritical of us to not do that. Was there like a level of fact checking that went into it, or was it just sort of like people would send you things and you would just put a place into the letter? We went through a whole like vetting process of we asked if they were comfortable to provide us with any contact information so that we could reach out to them if they were comfortable about just including it in the letter. Most of the times it was they when they submitted it, it would just be like about, I think, three or two of us that went through it and like checked everything to make sure nothing seemed off. But a lot of them were anonymous. So it was very difficult to necessarily fact check them. And also, I felt like it wouldn't be fair to students to be like, oh, you're talking about your trauma. Let me just fact check that and like make sure that you're not lying to me. And so it's it's about trusting students. And I 100% support all those students who have submitted all those things because it takes a lot of effort and guts to do that. How does the school move on? What do you want to see happen? I think there's been a lot of communication from profs that have taken over the positions of those who have resigned. And now I think it's more so our turn to open the line of communication. I think 
because the last three months have not been a vacation. It's just been recovering from everything that's been happening. Now it's, I think it's time to see the school take into account all the things that we said in the letter and actually put them into action. It's just going to have to be pushing for what we have asked for and making sure that that is actually happening. And it's not just a one-time thing. Do you think the letter was a necessary step? Yeah, honestly, I think it kind of scared some people. And I think that needed to happen in terms of like a little wake up call. At the end of the day, if we didn't publish that letter, then I don't think a lot of the things that would be happening now would be happening. Do you regret the way any of this sort of panned out? You know, when this letter came out, you saw generations of journalists who've been to Ryerson agreeing with it, supporting it, saying that everything in this letter is the same issue that I dealt with 10 years ago. And I haven't seen any sort of catalyst for action the way that this letter has accomplished it. Okay, that was Canada Land. And uh, if you like what we do here, we need you to help us make it. Click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read the emails that you send. Once again, I command you to subscribe to The Backbench. Hey, this episode is produced by Tristan Capicione, and it was reported by me and Sharice Sucharan. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. Hey, if you're hearing this message, you are not signed up for our premium version of this experience, and uh, we make it good. No ads, bonus stuff, and other stuff, t-shirts and stuff like that. Just go check it out. We make it nice. Canadaland.com slash join, or the link in your show notes. Takes like a minute. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get. For just $2 a month, that is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. 
she's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.